Hello and welcome to a brand new season of the Music to My Ears podcast. I'm the BBC Music Magazine editor, Oliver Condy, and in this episode, I talk to the Irish soprano Ailish Tynan. So a few bits and bobs about Ailish. In 2003, she won the Rosenblatt Recital Song Prize at BBC Cardiff Singer of the World and was a member of the prestigious Villa Young Artist Programme at the Royal Opera House, as well as a BBC New Generation artist. Her numerous operatic roles have included, to name just four, international performances as Gretel in Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel, Papagena in Mozart's Die Zauberflöte at La Scala and the Royal Opera House, Sophie in Richard Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier, and Miss Wordsworth in Britain's Albert Herring at Paris's Opera Comique and Rouen Opera. That's not even mentioning her recital and concert work, which has taken her from Mahler symphonies to Handel oratorios, French song to Schubert Lieder, in recital halls around the world, including several BBC proms. In this podcast, Ailish talks about her musical experiences in lockdown, recent streamed performances at the Royal Opera House and at Wigmore Hall, and, of course, at home with her family. But first, I asked her how she's been doing these past few months. Like, I know this has been tough in kind of weird ways, but on the whole, I can't believe how well we're all coping with it, actually. And I think a lot of it is down to the fact that we've got a three and a half year old and a dog. So they're very set in the routine. So even if I wanted to stay in bed till 12 o'clock every day and, you know, drink till two in the morning, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> Not with the two of them around. So, but there hasn't been any. But there's been, there's been no work at all, has there? Really, in the last six months. I mean, you've done some stuff at Wigmore Hall and for the Royal Opera House Royal Ballet. Yeah. But but it's been but it has been tough. Oh, hasn't it's it? been. I mean, I mean, it's been dire, and I've been one of the lucky ones. I mean, most people have had no work at all, and um, yeah, I mean, I had that recital at Wigmore in June, which was basically one of the first things that people started doing. I couldn't believe that John Galhuli was doing it. Everyone else was really you know, afraid to do anything, didn't know what they could do, didn't know what the rules were. And John Galuli just came out and said, we're doing it. You know, we're not going to make any money, but we're going to be making music. And that's the important thing. And I just, he, he was fantastic. He did a concert every day of June. And I think that gave kind of the whole industry at that stage and certainly British singers. And I'm Irish, of course, but living in London now 20 years, I think it gave us all. So, yeah. and now the Royal Opera House are starting to, get back in the game as well. And it's all very important. Like last week, as you were saying, I did that ballet gala for the Royal Opera House. And mm. um, that was great. They had a, a very small audience. It was a pilot audience of 400 people. It was all NHS workers and students. But the atmosphere, and I, of course, was only singing one little Purcell song for someone, uh, Osipova was dancing a piece from Medusa. And honestly, it felt so emotional to be there. Oh, it was just, for starters, the orchestra sounded phenomenal because they were in the stalls and you could see them all and you could hear them all. And the audience clapping, even though it was only 400 people, it could have been 4,000 because they were given it their all. I just, it was so wonderful to be back in a building where live music and dancing and joy was happening. I mean, there was the sense that you didn't know what you were missing until you were on stage in front of, you know, this this audience that that means so much. I mean, made up of students, you know, students have been affected hugely in the course of the oh, NHS, you know, well, yeah. and what a, what a bunch of heroes. So, you know, performing in front of them must have been a massive privilege. Oh, it was. It was. And actually, I was in the stalls as well with the orchestra. So um, it was a massive privilege. And I, my sister-in-law is actually an NHS nurse and 
she works in Northwick Hospital up in Harrow, which was, of course, one of the first hospitals. It was the first hospital to be declared critical back in March. And um, so I have huge respect. I have another niece in Ireland who's on the front line of it. So she's a nurse too. I just can't believe what they do every day. You know, it's... Mm. Yeah. So during lockdown, have you have you been using the time to develop repertoire? Have you been singing more? Have you been singing less? Have you found it to be a positive or a negative experience? What's you, what's been the last six months apart from obviously the the various sort of gems of concerts that have appeared here and there everywhere? What's it been like? Well, I mean, I haven't had really time to do any of those things that you're talking about, which I would have loved to have done. But I think I don't know if you've got kids, Ali. But and I never would have dreamed it could be so full on before I had mine. If someone had said to me a week before Daisy was born, oh, you've no idea what's coming your way. I would have laughed. I would have like, it's only a baby. But like, they require 24-7 attention, you know, Mm. and I don't know, maybe some people don't do that, but that's what I do. And it takes up all of our time, actually, myself and my husband, because so both of us, when March came, everything stopped. And mm. uh, he's obviously stopped the Royal Opera House as well. And childcare stopped. So the childminder was saying, well, we can't, you know, we have to close down as well. So we basically took over all of the childcare, which was a 24-7 job. I still laugh and I say to my husband, how on earth did we do two full-time jobs and mind this mm. child? One of the things I, I want to ask you is, is, do you have a sort of a current musical obsession? Because, you know, sometimes in lockdown, you can discover things and you can think, well, that, that's not a piece of music I'd, I'd sort of realised I loved before. Yeah, well, I, my current musical obsession is Wolf. And that's because I just started looking at it really before lockdown happened. And uh, I actually sang a good chunk of Wolf in my Wigmore recital. Mm. And the one song that I've become really obsessed with is Ganymede. And I'm still looking for the ultimate recording of it. But I think the best one I've come across so far is John McCormack singing it. And I just, I can't, it's like a tour de force. It's such a joy to sing. Keval Shah asked me, a, he's a, a pianist, asked me if I would do uh, the Wolf Italian leader book. And of course, the first song in that is Outkleine Dinge, The Little Tink Things. And that just struck a chord with me. It was very early on in lockdown, we did it. And it, Wolf it, just seems to have had so many lessons for me during this. And it's been like, just focus on the little things, because if you're worrying about the big things, you're just going to feel down all the time, you know. And it's it's so easy to feel down during this. Let's face it, there are a lot of young musicians out there just come out of college and starting off in their careers and a lot of people who would have put life plans on hold. I think the ones of us who maybe have things like children and dogs and this, that and the other, are it's a bit easier because you've got structure, you've got something to do, you have to get out of bed in the morning and you've it never stops really. But um, for people who maybe would have put life plans on hold because they're thinking I'm at the start of my career. This is what I did. I mean, this is why I spent so long waiting to have a child. That's really tough because you've made other sacrifices to make your musical career happen. 
and now you're kind of left with nothing. It's pretty bleak for students coming out of music college at the moment. First of all, their final years or their second years have been blighted by this. Mm. And now they're faced with a diminishing scene in which to get stuck in. Um, What would you advise a student to do? Well, I would just say, look, at this stage, you're very young. It's not really... These early years don't make terribly much difference in your career. It's kind of once you get to 25, 26, 27, those nearly 25 to 35 are the important years. Hang tight. And like even yesterday, I did think to myself, you know, the way Flybee went bust at the beginning of lockdown. Now somebody has bought Flybee. Flybee's been thrown a lifeline. Everything comes back. That's what we have to remember. It's like nature. No matter, you know, the shocking things that we've done to nature, if we then leave it alone, it comes back like everything will come back. So even though there's might be festivals which heartbreakingly have gone bust over this, something eventually will come and fill that void because that's the way humanity works. Voids get filled. They don't stay empty. And and also, I feel like there's a great opportunity for music in classrooms at the moment. Like, it's now that we've got all this technology, I would just love for us to be able to put more music into classrooms. There's that there's just not enough of that at all. I mean, so Daisy, as I'm talking about, who's three, she is my view into now to the world of music, children, what they're getting exposed to in school. And one of the big things she talks about every week is this man, Sirtash, comes in and he plays the piano and he bangs a drum and they all have to pretend they're elephants and he shakes a rattle and they all have to pretend they're snakes. And this gets reenacted in my kitchen every Friday evening when she comes home. This is the highlight of the week. But like there is not, we need more and more Sirtashes and we, professional musicians, we need to be providing something as well for schools that they can use on computers, on screens. They've all got screens now on computers uh, that we can be putting into the classroom, even if we can't be there physically. And teachers are crying out for it. When Daisy started nursery, the first thing the teacher said to me was, we're so disappointed that we can't have you in because now that we know you're an opera singer, now that we know your husband plays the trombone, we'd have you in. I'd like to talk about your sort of early sort of musical experiences, you know, as a kid growing up, you know, when did you sort of first discover your voice? When did you first think, gosh, this is something I've got and I should cherish it and I should, you know, develop it? I don't know if I ever really thought that growing up, Ollie. I mean, I went to a nun school and it was in, in a convent in my hometown of Mullingar in Ireland. And it was the nuns actually who spotted I have the voice. So I was immediately put into the school, the choir, of course, the mass choir. And then talking about building up this um, performance kind of steeliness. I mean, my first ever performing experiences were when I had to sing the solo at mass every Sunday. And it would be kind of on a rotation. There'd be maybe about four of us that would be good enough to sing the psalm. But you'd be so nervous. I'll never forget the first, I think it was the most nerve-wracking thing I ever did in my life was the first Sunday I ever had to stand up in the cathedral in Mullingar and sing the psalm. Looking back on it, I think, Lord. But ecclesiastical music is such a good training ground oh, for yeah. all singers of all kind. I mean, it's that it's that sense of you get up, you've got a ready-made audience. And when you're young at that stage, of course, you, you know, everyone, when you look little and you're singing, 
you get a few more breaks as a young, as a child, you know. So that Absolutely. was my first introduction. And when I was coming to the stage where I had to make decisions about what I had to do, everyone was saying, oh, you know, you must be a singer. But I really wanted to study law. My eldest brother is a lawyer. And anyways, he talked me out of it because he said, oh, you'd never stick it. It's far too boring for you. I think even at that stage, they knew that I was a bit flamboyant, maybe around the edges. <laughs> so I decided I'd compromise and I'd go to Trinity and I'd study I'd do a BMOS ed, Bachelor in Music Education, which meant I was doing a bit of singing, but mostly I was training to become a secondary school teacher in music and history. So that took four years. That was great four years. Sure, mostly all I did was party and have a ball at college. Oh, there were some wild nights there. Anyways, I got the degree and off I went to do my teaching. And I did two weeks teaching and I thought, oh, oh. <laughs> I mean, I take my hats off to teachers, friends I have who are secondary school teachers. I can't believe the stories they tell me. So I, I, I basically did two weeks of that and I was like, right, big mistake, back to college, master's in singing. <laughs> and that, that was it. So that was how I really became a singer. What was the sort of first piece of classical music that really sort of got you hooked? The, or the first, pe- the, the first song or the first, you know, first musical experience, really? Uh, well, well, so coming... Starting in Ireland, of course, at that stage, I know things are better now opera wise in Ireland with the Opera Ireland and stuff like that. But back our, our um, yeah, so we, we've got more options in Ireland for opera. And uh, I know Fergus Sheil is doing a great job over there and Opera Northern Ireland are doing good work. But um, when when I was kind of coming up at that stage, there was really no opera in Ireland at all. So I hadn't even I didn't see an opera until I came to London, and that was when I was twenty five. It was Alcina at Eno, and I remember that having a huge impact on me, massive. Lisa Milne was uh, Morgana, and I remember thinking, "Oh my god!" I was a bit fangirling Lisa Milne. I thought she was the greatest thing ever, which she's a phenomenal singer, and. Um, so that was a big, I think it was a David McVicker production. It was very colourful. It was just brilliant, the whole thing. So that was a big, big eye opener to me as to where I wanted to go. Before that, what I had had in Ireland was a lot of exposure to art song, which I think is why I have such a big connection with it now. And I had a music teacher in Ireland, Jenny Redden. She's dead now, but she was even very old when I started training with her. And she kind of took me under her wing. And she would teach me all the art songs, you know, Schubert and all the stuff that I still sing today. So I think that was kind of my my nurturing ground of it all. And then when I came to London, of course, I got on the opera. Well, I was on the opera course at Guildhall and then I went on to the opera programme at Covent Garden. So they were two big opportunities. So suddenly it was like, wow, this is opera. This is great. I think the first thing I actually did professionally, you know, well, I did Barbarina Kleinborn and then the next thing I did and in the tour and then the next thing I did was David McVicker's Magic Flute and I was Papagena and it was the first production. It was going to be on DVD. It was on the big screens in the square. It was just like, wow, this is unbelievable. Simon Keenly side and all this incredible cast. The first thing I ever sang that I won a competition with was Schubert's Di Farella. I was 11 and I won the Fesh Kjol in Ireland. I think it was maybe the, was I like, yeah. And uh, I don't know, that has stuck with me all my life.
It's just so joyful. It's so perfect, that song. And it's the way I feel really about music. Like, I wouldn't be singing if it didn't make me happy. And basically singing just makes me so happy and communicating with people makes me so happy. And of course, that's a great song from a communicative level. I know it's one of the most basic songs. You know, it's one of the most well-known. It's not anything fancy or exciting from the point of view of repertoire. You know, I'm not saying, oh, yes, it was a piece by Shostakovich, you know. <laughs> like, but it, it kind of, yeah, it's been something that I've sung all through my whole career and I love singing it because it, it exemplifies a lot of things that I think are important about music for me. Yes, I mean, singing is something that everyone should do a little bit more of, I think. You know, in schools is, is, is you know, people obsess about instruments, but I think singing is, is very much sort of part of the Oh, I think sort of singing is the one because the apart soul. from anything else, you don't need to buy anything to sing, you That's know. And like, I live in Lewisham in South East London and there can tell you something, there's a lot of kids around here that wouldn't have the money to be buying anything, especially now. Everyone can sing. It's free and it's it's so important. I mean, I know, Ali, one of the things you were asking me about when we had a little chat was what music is most important to me. And I can safely say at the moment that the music that I couldn't live without over this lockdown has been nursery rhymes. Little, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star. The amount of twinkle, twinkle, little stars and Humpty Dumpties. And I am singing them all. I'd say we probably do about half an hour of singing every day, myself and Daisy, between, you know, when she goes to bed at night, she wants songs. We do a bit of singing during the day. If Just if she falls down and hurts her head or whatever, you know, a song is a great way to cheer her up. But like getting parents singing all those things. And actually, James Bailey and myself had a bit of an idea that we would love to do kind of a posh, well, not posh, but classical. <laughs> no, I don't think I could say there's anything terribly posh about me. Uh, but a <laughs> classical music version of nursery rhymes that we could introduce maybe older kids to, you know. But so that they've got something where, like, you know, the Poulang songs, more just fine stuff that is kid friendly, but that is also classical music. And, and we're still trying to think of a way we could get this to them. We haven't thought of it yet, Ali, but we'll keep thinking. Well, I think I think the thing about a lot of these composers' songs is that they are quite straightforward. I mean, you talk about Schubert's Di Forella. I mean, oh, that's, that's something a perfect that a example. kid can sing. That's a, it's yeah. almost nursery rhyme in itself. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these, a lot of these songs, um, simply because of the language barrier, a lot of kids probably don't approach them. Yeah. They're good translations. They're good performances. They're, you know. Well, I, I think Daisy's always wanted can... me to make up songs about like every animal she sees or flies or bees and everything, you know. So I'm always thinking and then one day she wanted me to make up a song about a cuckoo. And I started singing, Cuckoo hat sich zu Tode gefallen, Tode gefallen in einen grünen Weiden. That is the one she wants me to sing all the time. And now she's singing it in like terrible German. <laughs> I don't 
That was Ailish Tynan talking to me, Oliver Condy. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Do let us know what you think of it by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and in various digital formats. Or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read all about the latest musical happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. Thank you to Acast for hosting this podcast and to our producer, Jack Bateman.